Fighting. Hatred. Fear. Had enough of the noise? Energetic Health Radio, and thank you so much for listening. My goodness, we have a show today. We are going to be getting into, I think, what really, really matters about this whole COVID situation, and that's going to be a concept called willful misconduct. And we're going to show some things that came out today. There was a absolutely astounding, we've been waiting for this for over a year, a whistleblower who was directly involved with the clinical trials. Her name was Brooke Jackson. She submitted materials to an investigative uh, reporter by the name of Paul D. Thacker, and they bravely, and I got to give the uh, British Medical Journal, the BMJ, huge credit here. They've actually done a really good job, I think, throughout this of, of bringing, creating a platform for people to discuss this topic with some level of censorship free environment, you know, the uh, British Medical Journal. But Paul D. Thacker published something, uh, I think it was over the last uh, couple of days, but published something from a whistleblower showing that there was rampant problems with the Pfizer clinical trials, especially the phase three clinical trials. And these um, allegations include falsification of data and failure to adhere to the clinical trial as it was designed and approved by the um, IRB, by the Investigative uh, Review Board, right? So when you see that there are violations of clinical trial, when you start hearing of reports of, of falsification of clinical trial data, I think what it does is it puts us in a position where we have to investigate it thoroughly. So when we get into um, the third segment, we're going to be talking about willful misconduct a lot and our grand jury petition that uh, has been put together on this. We want to educate you not on what has happened, but most importantly, I should say not only what has happened, but most importantly, what you can do about it. See, We're not here to share information so that you can be outraged, you can be disappointed, you can be saddened by what's going on. We're here to share information so that you can get empowered, you can tap into that power you already possess to do something about it. Now, I am very, very lucky today to have as a special guest, um, a dear friend of mine, he's been um, with me through I think the whole thing of this, uh, this COVID crisis, uh, helping to validate data. He is a lead co-author along with me on the um, COVID research team. Uh, we've published so much work on, on COVID, but we've published a couple of what we feel are seminal um, peer-reviewed papers, uh, one in the uh, IPAC journal and another one on Green Med Info. And both of them have been about 
showing the rampant problems that have been going on, the obvious problems that we all need to address here. We have rogue federal agencies running amok right now, and no one is holding them accountable. We have proof that the CDC violated multiple federal laws to hyperinflate and falsify COVID data. We, we can prove this. Uh, we have proof that the CDC and the FDA and the HHS have all been responsible in withholding evidence-based treatments from people in need. And that's just wrong. It's just flat out wrong. It's not only unethical, it creates a legal concept that emerged out of the Tuskegee experiment investigations, a legal concept called willful misconduct. And it means very simply that you have people working within the federal government who know that what they are doing is wrong, but they do it anyway. They know that withholding evidence-based treatments is wrong, but they do it anyway. They know that falsifying data is wrong, but they do it anyway. They know that hyperinflating data and violating federal laws in order to do so is wrong, but they do it anyway. That is by definition willful misconduct, and it is worthy of a thorough grand jury investigation, something that we're going to talk more about in a little bit. So, I would say buckle up today. We got a lot of very real, serious adult conversations to have. We're going to share with you information from the whistleblower. We're going to bring Michael McAvoy on, who is going to crush it as he always does with his investigative research capabilities. And we are going to talk, as we always do, about what we can do about it. It's not enough to identify the problem. We also have to identify, develop, and enact the solutions. And that's what we're out. We're all about here at Energetic Health Radio. So we're excited to get this show on the road. We're going to take a little quick break, give our sponsors a chance to speak to you, and then come back on with Michael McAvoy. Talk to you real soon, folks. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. All right. Welcome back. Uh, I am so thrilled to have my brother, my dear friend, uh, uh, Michael 
uh, McAvoy on with us. Uh, Michael McAvoy is the founder of Metabolic Healing. He is one of the most brilliant people I've ever talked to. Um, he is just such a phenomenal investigative researcher, and he can synthesize information. He can read a uh, study and break it down as fast as anyone I've ever seen, get to the key constituents of it, and then be able to extrapolate that information in ways that are always productive. And, you know, this, I think, just comes across when you're talking with somebody who, one, really cares and is always in the pursuit of truth. You know, that's the integrity that this guy has is just through the roof. Um, and it's really just a pleasure and privilege to work with him. I just wish it was on a better topic that we got to work on, but we're working on the topic of our of our lifetime. So I guess this is why we met and it's really, really cool. Uh, Michael McAvoy is also the lead co-author for the COVID research team. He's been my right-hand man throughout all of this, these last 21, 22 months, wherever we are, I'm in this groundhog day time warp like most of you are uh, but just one of the most incredible um, minds and one of the big biggest hearts you'll find in uh, in this work on covid uh, mike uh, come on and join us how are you doing today my brother i'm really well dr ely thank you for having me it's great to be here it's always an honor and a privilege to work with you and uh, i i appreciate very much the uh, the, the very complimentary comments um, I just want to let everybody know that Dr. Ely is one of the hardest working, if not the hardest working people I have ever met. And I've met a lot of people who work really hard. And um, I just want to say that your tenacity to do what's right and to uncover the truth and to hold people accountable for um, crime, as well as to hold them to high standards of ethics is something that I greatly admire in you. And so thank you very much for your work. Amen, my brother. Thank you for that high praise. You know, it takes one, no one, right? <laughs> That's how we do it. Well, let's let's jump in. This this British medical journal thing was just like, when, when you told me about this, I, you know, I read it and it was just like my jaw dropped because I was like, Mike, this is the person, Brooke Jackson, and uh, and and the investigative uh, journalist uh, Peter uh, Paul, excuse me, Paul D. Thacker. Brooke Jackson is the whistleblower we've been looking for for over a year. You know, with with all the work we've done on the hyperinflation of data and the wolf, acts of willful misconduct. You know, what did you take away from that British Medical Journal article that really stood out for you? Well, it was definitely a shock because, as you said. There is um, there's a need for people like this to come forward and to provide mm -hmm. a firsthand account and testimony of what they were witness to. And from the very beginning, once the clinical trials for the COVID vaccines began, there were a lot of scientists and physicians and researchers who were very skeptical that the studies were going to be performed with the highest scientific rigor and standards. And there was a lot of evidence to suggest that there were problems with the way that the studies were being conducted. Um, <clears throat> but to this point, there hasn't been, to my knowledge, any scientists who have come forward to really make claims that they witnessed things that were egregious. Mm -hmm. And so this mm -hmm. was one of the first, if not the first um, testimonials of a scientist who was working in the clinical research of the Pfizer COVID vaccine 
um, clinical trials as they were beginning in September of 2020, mm -hmm. who has made a number of observations about the problems that the company that she was working for, Ventavia, mm -hmm. this is a, uh, a, a research institute that does what appears to be some type of contracting um, scientific work for Pfizer. <clears throat> and in that, yeah, and in that process, um, she was observing a lot of deviations from normal scientific procedures, which raise a number of very uh, conversations and questions about scientific ethics, mm -hmm. as well as how the data from the from these studies may be compromised. Yeah, I, I, what, what stood out for me first for what you were talking about was I had it in my head that, you know, Pfizer, for example, Pfizer, BioNTech, right? I had in my head that they were somehow conducting all, there were 43,000, I think, people in the original study, a little bit over that. But I, I had it in my head, they were, the Pfizer was running all of these through their offices, through their, you know, facilities and things like that. I didn't realize that there's this whole subgroup of you can basically get your clinical trial approved and get funding for it, you know, from the American taxpayer. And then you can outsource, you know, your clinical trial actual work to all these other organizations. So what was really the first thing that stood out for me was that there were 153 research centers involved uh, uh, in, this, in this clinical trial. And it was like, wow, that's mind blowing right there because the opportunity for error and the opportunity for cutting corners skyrockets immensely at that point, right? What was really concerning for me is that we have this supposed new technology that we consider gene therapy, but some people are trying to call the vaccine, right? And that it would make sense to me on the one thing that we have to make sure we get right. If this is going to be a really a dominant part of the solution for this crisis, it would make sense to me that the FDA would inspect every single one of those 153 sites to make sure there was no problems with how this was done. It would make sense to me that if the FDA received any complaints from any of these 153 satellite research uh, centers, right? That they would be all over it to find that out. So it was alarming to me in this uh, British Medical Journal expose was that not only did Brooke Jackson catalog everything, but she reported it to her superiors who didn't report it to the FDA. And then she took it upon herself, the brave woman that she is, the woman of integrity that she is, to report it to the FDA. And even after reporting it to the FDA, the FDA still did not go out and investigate that specific site, right? That they didn't do any of it. It was absolutely appalling to me. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, it's the FDA's responsibility to ensure that scientific studies that have this type of significance uh, are done with the proper level of scientific integrity. Mm -hmm. And if, if the FDA is unwilling to regulate um, and enforce the code of ethics with medicine and science, then it raises very significant questions about medical ethics and particularly with regulatory agencies. 
I think it raises the question also of regulatory capture. You know, why, why would you not, the, uh, somebody with 20 years of experience in this is telling you point blank, there are major problems that could compromise the approval, the EUA approval of this product, the safety and efficacy of this product. And you don't go and check on that. You don't go and say, you know what? That's the first report or first major report we've had of this. We're going to send a team out to investigate that and make sure everything's right. Isn't that a little odd to you? That seems a little odd to me, you know? And I, and I think it's just disgusting that the company, what was, how do you pronounce this? Ventavia? Is that how you pronounce Obvia, it? Ventavia, yeah. It's the first I've actually heard of this company and they are purportedly the, uh, you know, one of the largest um, uh, types of uh, research institutes out of Texas and supposedly has won a number of awards for their contract work. So, you know, it's clear to me that if, if Pfizer is going to outsource its responsibility to conduct scientific, uh, you know, studies in, in, in being able to manage the aspects of the scientific study, if they're going to do that, then that means that there needs to be the proper oversight by somebody. And if that oversight is not happening, it's to be held responsible for when things go wrong, when uh, people begin to do things mm -hmm. that um, move away from, from important scientific standards, no one's being held accountable. Then we have a number of problems that that raises. We have uh, especially when you're going to come out and claim that your product is safe and effective, mm -hmm. when in fact the scientific studies that were used to come to that determination may very well be seriously compromised. Right. We have to really understand the way that science is conducted and the way that it is supposed to be conducted versus how it has been conducted in this cl clinical trial. Man, I 100% agree. I want to read this, this quote that they, they had in here um, because there was some interaction with the FDA. The FDA actually called her, Brooke Jackson, called her back afterwards and said, um, let's see, within hours, um, Jackson received an email from the FDA thanking her for her concerns and notifying her that the FDA could not comment on any investigation that might result. That's fair, right? That's, that's fair. Thank you for getting back to me. A few days later, Jackson received a call from an FDA inspector to discuss her report, was, but was told that no further information could be provided. It's an ongoing investigation. Um, I, I don't think there's, I don't have any problem with that as long as it's an ongoing investigation, right? The problem comes in that there was never a site visit. The FDA never investigated her complaint and her complaint was significant. This is what this is a quote um, from an, uh, the FDA inspector uh, inspection office, uh, and it says the FDA's inspection officer noted, and I would assume this is to Brooke Jackson since they were interacting with her. This is a quote from the FDA's inspection office: the data integrity and verification portion of the bio research monitoring inspections were limited because the study was ongoing and the data required for verification and comparison were not yet available to the investigational new drug. 
So wait a second. And this, this took place in August of this year. This is their FDA's ex explanation. The FDA gets informed of a complaint that there's major problems with the clinical trial. There's falsification of data in the clinical trial. There's people that some of the participants have been unblinded that the people performing the inoculations weren't doing it correctly. And that even the temperature that the um, that the vials need to be needed to be kept at wasn't being honored. They're getting all of these reports from from a whistleblower from Brooke Jackson. They tell her that they're going to look into it, and then out of the 153 sites that were conducting similar portions of this clinical trial for Pfizer, that Pfizer had outsourced this clinical trial to, only nine of them were visited and inspected by the FDA. And the one site that we know of that had a definitive major complaints against it, Intavius, never got an FDA visit. The FDA never went to the site to investigate what was going on. And as we know, when you don't go to look for the problems and correct them, the problems are likely to continue. Right. It isn't like they fired her the same day and then everything got better. That's not how any of this works. They think you've got to be stupid to think that that's that was the solution. Oh, we'll just fire her. She's Brooke Jackson, the woman with integrity who actually cares about how clinical trials are done. She's the problem because she's actually saying that we're doing things wrong, that we're doing wrong and telling the FDA. That's ridiculous to fire somebody like that. I mean, can you can you mention can you talk to that for a second? What? what how does that make you feel that the person who was on this and trying to correct the problem got fired for doing the right thing? Well, it's no surprise. We've been seeing this type of trend occurring over the last 21 months where people mm -hmm. of integrity, people of scientific integrity, physicians, you could have, you could be one of the wide, most widely published research scientists in the world. You could be nominated for a Nobel peace prize. You could be treating thousands of patients with, uh, with COVID and, and leading to safe and effective treatments that have nothing to do with the so-called vaccine. You are deplatformed, you're relegated, you're discredited, you are mm -hmm. in many ways uh, turned into a pariah. And so this is just one of many examples of how um, people's reputations have been and characters have been assassinated over the past 21 months. It's, it's deplorable. In, in the truest use of that word, it's deplorable. Instead of taking these people and saying, yes, Brooke Jackson, thank you. So Brooke Jackson, I'm going to tell you straight up, if you ever listen to this, thank you so much for your bravery, your courage and what you're doing. We support you 100%. I hope to get to meet you one day um, and interview, interview you on the show and, and let your story be told. Um, I, I just, I, I, it, it blows my mind with something like this that is being so profitable. Pfizer has had to revise their, um, their earnings uh, beyond what they even thought they were going to make on this, right? That we are not investigating. We To this point, we haven't thoroughly investigated what's going on with this. So before we go to break, um, Michael, what I, what I really would like to do is I, I'd like to share with um, the audience, you know, you know, 
this is a large scale clinical trial. What are some of the basic things that you can think of? Because you've read so much research and you've gotten so into this. What are some of the basic things that should be a part of every single clinical trial, but especially a clinical trial of this magnitude with a new technology? Well, one of the things that was evidently problematic, according to the whistleblower, is that um, there was deviation from the basic scientific integrity. And um, this included um, participants not knowing if they were being blinded or if they were actually, if they were receiving the placebo or if they were um, receiving the shot, the, inter the intervention, um, you know, simple things that were being um, relegated or not even considered. You know, something as simple as <clears throat> if the uh, efficacy of the drug, or in this case, the shot that's being delivered is not being stored at the proper temperature, the product will degrade very rapidly. And so these are very, very key things that uh, even under the context of scientific studies, there are certain things within this type of a study that should have been done, were knew that they needed to be done and weren't being done. Mm -hmm. um, not, not labeling the specimens correctly, not reporting timely uh, adverse events that mm -hmm. were a result. Mm -hmm. um, having uh, basically putting uh, participants in these studies in the hallway after injection, not being appropriately monitored by the clinical staff that is supposed to be doing their job. I mean, the way that this was being described by not only Ms. Jackson, but as it turned out, the investigative reporter with the BMJ wound up interviewing a number of other colleagues of Ms. Jackson's who was working mm -hmm. for Ventavia at the same time. And they confirmed the quote unquote helter skelter nature of the clinical trial that they were involved in. And so what we really have to appreciate and understand is that science has to be about ethics. Mm -hmm. Science has to be about proper protocols and procedures, mm -hmm. especially when human life is on the line. And need we say more that this, in this experimental biologic, which mind you, it is still experimental because the clinical trials are still ongoing mm -hmm. for the next at least one to two years. Mm -hmm that um, if, if these types of studies are not performed with rigorous standards, mm -hmm. the possibility for error and for um, inconclusive at the best uh, results is very high. And in this case, because the product is now being used so widely around the world, we have a number of different concerns. And I also wanna just say one thing about Ms. Jackson Mm -hmm. And I, I have to echo your um, praise for her and her courage to come forward, because in many ways, she's putting her life on the line. Yep. But the reality of the situation is that this was at one of 153 different types of sites for this mm -hmm. clinical trial. Mm -hmm. I will guarantee that there are dozens or hundreds of more people like her that mm -hmm. have made similar obser observations about what they've seen. And I hope that her testimony is to others that have witnessed similar things at other testing sites to come forward and to give statements such as this. What? Because science depends on this. Scientific integrity depends on this. Medical ethics depends upon this. 
And if we can't have a society where ethics and medical ethics and scientific ethics are, are set to a very high standard, mm-hmm. if the bottom line is always about money and about generating as much revenue as possible to satisfy the profit shares of the shareholders, then we have serious, serious problems. We have problems that in all likelihood are unrecoverable at that point. The, the only determination, we, we cannot have ourselves sink so low that the only consideration that we make in these situations is the bottom line. You know, when there are lives at stake, when you lie, people die. That's how it works. And when you lie in a clinical trial, people die. And as a result, people lose their faith, their trust in, in, in modern medicine. And with good reason, how many people have you heard? And I'm, this, is, this is rhetorical, but how many people have you heard of, right, Michael, that recently are like, under no circumstances will I go into a hospital? I, it doesn't matter if I have an, an eyeball coming out of my head, I am not going in to a hospital because I'm worried that I might die in there. I'm worried that they might inject me with an experiment that I don't want to be a part of. I wonder that they might even, I worry that they might even turn me away because they'll ask me whether or not I'm, I've been inoculated. And when I say I'm waiting until the clinical trials are done to make a decision, they'll look at me and say, well, you can't come in here. We're going to discriminate against you. This is all unethical. So I want to read something from this report um, uh, to back up what you were saying. So it, it, it says uh, in a recording of a meeting in late September, 2020 between Brooke Jackson and two directors at Ventavia, um, a uh, Ventavia executive can be heard explaining that the company wasn't able to quantify the types and numbers of errors they were finding when examining the trial paperwork for quality control. This is a quote from the executive. In my mind, it's something new every day, and we know that it's significant. Well, if it's something new every day and you know it's significant, that should shut down that clinical trial site until everything is corrected. And that should be done by the FDA if it's not already been done by the the people at that trial site. They went on to say, uh, Ventavia uh, was not keeping up with data entry queries uh, shows, and it shows in an email sent by ICON, I forget who ICON was, the contract research organization with which Pfizer partnered on the clinical trial. So that's who ICON was. ICON reminded Ventavia in a September 2020 email, this is quote, the expectation for this study is that all queries are addressed within 24 hours. ICON then highlighted over 100 outstanding queries older than three days in, uh, in, in yellow. Examples included two individuals for which subject has reported with severe symptoms slash reactions. Per the protocol, subjects experiencing grade three local reactions should be contacted. Please, concern, please confirm if an unplanned contact was made and an update to the corresponding form as appropriate. So what this is telling us is there were at least two individuals who contacted Ventavia saying, we're having severe symptoms, we need help. And Ventavia, which was supposed to get back to everybody within 24 hours, didn't get back to them within three days. And this concerns me, Michael, because we know from the Pfizer clinical trials 
there was a subset of over 3,000 people who were removed from the trials without any explanation, and we could not track or verify what happened to those people. It makes me wonder, were these two people who had severe reactions and weren't followed up with within 24 hours taken out of the ultimate data set that the Pfizer used for EUA approval? That's falsification of data right there. But this, this is that concern. And just to to back you up a little bit more on this experiment uh, that's going on, right? Is that when we look at the clinical trials, I keep beating this drum, everybody. These, all these experimental products are in phase three, um, uh, phase three of their clinical trial. Pfizer BioNTech does not end until May 2nd of 2023 and their product Cormier Nadi doesn't end until May 31st of 2027. You cannot get FDA, full FDA approval until all clinical trials have been completed. So it's right there. It's on the National Institutes of Health site. It's right there. It's right there in the FDA conditional approval document that was issued on the 23rd of August. It, it, all you have to do is read the document and you can see these are still in ongoing clinical trials that makes them experimental. And because they are experimental and EUA approved, you cannot mandate them or force them upon anybody or else you're in violation of the 45 CFR uh, 46 law. You're in violation of chapter 21 of the United States Code 360 BBB. You are in violation of and, and when you put up people's jobs up against it, you're in violation of discrimination. So now you're in violation of the Title VII and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And because if you're refusing to allow a child into school because they are unvaccinated and you are, or and I say child, it could be a young adult as well for colleges, you're in violation of Brown versus the Board of Education. Which, which, which roundly rejected separate but equal as a, as, a, as a societal concept. Folks, there are so many violations here. Continuing on, we have the Moderna, uh, Anthony Fauci um, uh, experimental inoculation. I say Anthony Fauci because the NIH has um, removed themselves from the Moderna um, sponsorship from the joint financial interest with Moderna, and they've specifically listed as of last week Anthony Fauci's NIAID as the financial partner with Moderna. All right. It's no longer NIH. Their clinical trial doesn't end until October 27th. Oh, by the way, folks on that, everything I'm saying, easily verifiable. You can just go to the National Institutes of Health, the clinicaltrials.gov, look up the clinical trial and see it. Okay. It's all right there hiding in plain sight. And Johnson & Johnson doesn't end until January 2nd, 2023. folks. These are experiments, and as such, no human being is required to participate in an experiment. No human being is required or can be coerced or forced to participate in the experiment, and this is where we have to hold the line. We cannot allow Auschwitz to be in vain. We cannot allow slavery to be in vain. We cannot allow these horrible experiences we've had as humans where we were we were experimented on against our free will to become a normal operating procedure because we are more concerned about the bottom line profitability than we are human life and the ethics of doing what's right we just simply can't allow this to happen so thank you for listening uh, we're going to take a quick break 
to get our sponsors to give them a chance to talk a little bit more. And we'll be right back with more with, with uh, Michael McAvoy. We're going to especially come back talking about what we can do about this because there's a lot we can do about it. Be right back, folks. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. All right, everybody, welcome back. Wow, I, I hope you're learning a lot so far about this, but we don't want to ever make anything that we're sharing here about just learning about it. It's not enough anymore. We have to get into the business of doing something about it. And what is that going to look like? So uh, Mike and I have been working at this for a long time. And I want to take you back through a little bit of the work we've done together so that you can get yourself oriented, especially if you're listening to this in a podcast where, um, where we'll have links for you and everything to go and join. Uh, but we're going to take you through two of our most important papers, and then we're going to take you into um, what you can really do about it. Um, and we've had some just great partnerships with Stanford Health Freedom and Leah Wilson and, and Sayer G. Uh, just great people to support, great effort to support. We're going to share that information with you as well. So, uh, Michael, we we were working on this last summer. We were going in and doing what good scientists do. We're looking at the data. We're we're going through and all the data. And there's so much that just wasn't making sense and everything. And then you stumbled uh, for our paper uh, that our first peer reviewed paper that got published uh, in IPAC Journal with Dr. James Lyons Weiler. Um, COVID-19 data collection, comorbidity, and federal law, a historical perspective. You stumbled upon, I think, the most important piece of information we found over, throughout all of our research. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about what you stumbled on in terms of the law? Yeah. The first thing I want to say is that back in, starting in February, April, me and Dr. Ely were working uh, regularly, and Dr. Ely was tracking the data from every U.S. state health department uh, in the United States for a considerable period of time, doing daily PSAs for what sixty days straight or something. Yeah, we did. I think we ended up doing over a hundred of them. Yeah, hundred PS. And so there was a, an enormous amount of data that was being aggregated by Dr. Ely. He was doing an incredible job of monitoring the activities being reported by every U.S. State Department, every U.S. Health Department in the United States. And we got to a point in this analysis where it was evident that there were things with the data entry at the various state levels that seemed to be very contradictory to what the CDC was saying. This was particularly true of New York State mm -hmm. and other states as well. There were a lot of things that were happening. So we knew that there was something wrong with data collection and or reporting. And we spent an extraordinary amount of time really uncovering and unpacking that. It was sometime in the summer of 2020 where we decided to sort of shift our research so that we were kind of looking more at what were the possible causes mm -hmm. for the discrepancies of the data that we're observing. There's got mm -hmm. to be a reason why the data that we're looking at is 
skewed or doesn't seem to make sense. And we stumbled upon um, the Information Quality Act and the Paperwork Reduction Act, which are all coded in 44 U.S. Code. These are federal laws that ex essentially exist for the federal government to be held to extremely high standards of data collection from the public. And uh, essentially, this is where the, the executive branch of the government uh, creates a series of checks and balances and oversight over all federal government agencies that collect data, including the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services, who's the parent organization of the CDC. And we basically found that uh, on the, uh, the March 24th guidelines that were issued by uh, the CDC for how fatality reporting for COVID was going to be conducted, mm -hmm. that the change in these fatality reporting guidelines never met the proper oversight from uh, the executive branch of government. There were obvious missteps. There was obvious uh, circumvention from the normal process of, of uh, data uh, entry into the federal register, proposed data collection changes, I should say. And so it was obvious to us that there were clear and present violations of federal law at the hand of the CDC. Mm -hmm. And that's what got us going with our fourth paper, which was published in the IPAC journal in October of 2020. That paper went through a number of different peer review processes. It was reviewed by, I believe, nine attorneys and a judge, as mm -hmm. well as uh, peer reviewers for the journal itself. And we, we really went through 25 or so versions of that before it went into publication. It eventually got picked up by a number of different media outlets and was covered at one point by USA Today, I believe, mm -hmm. and has served as the source of uh, legal uh, actions, including in one case um, filed in U.S. District Court of Northern Ohio by Tom Renz against the CDC, using the same uh, legal argument based upon the findings of our paper. So we considered that paper that we published to be a seminal paper in the pursuit of unraveling the truth as well as the data manipulation that we allege. And so that's how that came to be. Mm -hmm. and, and, and essentially for readers who are just getting oriented to this, uh, this peer reviewed paper, um, essentially what, ha what the CDC was supposed to do is whenever they're changing how data is gonna be collected, published, analyzed, um, they have to enter that request to change that process through the federal register. And they're very well aware of this. There's tens of thousands of entries for little small things like nicotine in uh, Native American uh, reservations and things. I mean, they're, they're, it's incredibly important that they do this, and that's to be in compliance with federal law. When the CDC would enter, enter the change and a request for change, it does two things. It, one alerts the executive branch, specific branch of the of them called the Office of Management and Budget, and a sub-branch within there called the OIRA to investigate and make sure that they're following the rules, following the law. It also opens up a mandatory 30 to 60-day public comment window so that scientists like ourselves, like Dr. Harvey Reich, like Dr. Peter McCullough can say, hey, your proposed change is going to not work. It's going to hyperinflate the data. We need You need to revise this request. Um, and, and we can participate in our own governance. The CDC did not, of all the things that they've put in to the federal register to start this process, this federally, this, this process that's 
supposed to happen under federal law. The CDC did not do that for the March 24th COVID alert number two document, which dramatically changed how death certificates are reported. They didn't do it for the April 14th adoption of the Council of State and Territorial and Epidemiologist position paper, which they which defined a case as a single cough. You could cough once and that could be counted as a COVID case. These were major ways that the CDC um, really avoided and tried to circumvent, like Michael said, federal law to, and the result was a significant hyperinflation in the data, the cases, hospitalizations, and of course, and sadly deaths because of how the CDC has manipulated this process in violation and in, in our allegations, violations of federal law. Now, from, from that, and you can read more about that again, that's in our, our peer reviewed paper that had no one has been able to take down not even the vaunted USA Today, um, COVID-19 data collection, comorbidity, and federal law, a historical retrospective. And that paper uh, we feel is solid. I did talk to Tom Renz, Michael, and he let me know that it's still in process. The case that he filed um, based upon that paper is still in process. Judges just don't seem to want to touch it. They can't kick it out of court, but they don't want to touch it for what it actually reveals. So we, we put something together, brother, really good there. Um, we did a second paper, and that second paper was peer-reviewed and published um, by um, Sayer G's network uh, and uh, Green Med Info. That paper is titled COVID-19 Restoring Public Trust During a Health Crisis. And what was interesting to me about that paper was that we, had, we, know, we knew about the, uh, the allegations of violation of federal law. We knew about that. We, we have the screenshots to prove it, folks. Mike and I have gone through and recorded over 27, was it so 67 pages of screenshots showing that there are no entries in the federal register that so if the CDC tries to slip one in there, psh, nope, sorry, you're not going to be able to do that, right? So we, we're all over that. We've already given that, that documentation to a number of legal teams um, who shall remain nameless because we do support in our efforts, a lot of elected officials and a lot of legal teams and always on a volunteer basis. Everything we do is on a volunteer basis. We don't, we don't make any money. We actually spend money <laughs> to do what we do. Um, uh, maybe not smart, but definitely ethical, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. So um, in this second paper, Michael, um, for me, what really stood out was willful misconduct. What really stood out was the breakdown, how, how we've known for decades, based upon the Tuskegee experiment, based upon the Nuremberg uh, trials, we've known what's right and wrong regarding human experimentation. We even have it codified in 45 CFR 46 law, right? Code of Federal Regulations, that's what CFR stands for. I've learned more about the law than I ever thought I would learn, right? And <laughs> throughout this. So what, what stood out for me in that paper was um, that so many people had lost their lives. You know, we have young, young ones who have committed um, suicide and taken their own lives. We have young ones who have, uh, have overdosed. The CDC has reported that overdoses in 2020 uh, rose by 30.9% over the previous year. It's the largest single year rise ever in recorded history um, for that. Uh, we know that um, too many of our elders, hundreds of thousands of our elders died alone um, and behind plexiglass because people were afraid of an infection that has a 99.6% recovery rate, according to the CDC and people under 65 years of age. It's just that what we're doing, our response hasn't 
met the data. You know, the data is hyperinflated and even the hyperinflated data still is not worrisome. It doesn't look like an emergency to me looking at that data. What, what stood out for me though, was this willful misconduct, this idea that knowingly withholding, and this comes from the Tuskegee experiment, knowingly withholding evidence-based treatments from people in need is wrong. And that we've seen the FDA, we've seen the mainstream media vilifying hydroxychloroquine, politicizing it, hydro, uh, vilifying ivermectin, politicizing it, um, ignoring vitamin D outright and the importance of 50 nanograms per milliliter in the bloodstream. What stood out for me was, my God, we've put together this magnum opus of work that shows to me conclusively that there is major problems every single place you look. What stood out for you in, in that paper, um, Restoring Public Trust or Restoring Trust During a Health Crisis? You can't have emergency use authorization if there are existing safe and effective treatments already. Exactly. Well, well put. You know, and also we, because we looked at the Pfizer clinical trials specifically, you know, and there were so many problems that we could see just reading through the New England Journal of Medicine's reports on the clinical trials, the not the least of which was what we talked about in the previous segment, that there were a number, there was thousands of people in those clinical trials that just magically disappeared from the final data analysis. They were just gone. You know, the trial started out with over 43,000 people. And then, but the data analysis, when you get down to it, I think was 38,000 people. Well, what happened to those? you know, roughly 5,000 people, what happened to them? Where did they go? Well, I wonder now, based upon Brooke Jackson's whistleblower stuff, how many of those people had severe events post-inoculation and they were just removed from the clinical trial willy-nilly so that it couldn't, you know, it couldn't mess up the data. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen that happen before in clinical trials. What's the, what's, what have you seen in clinical trials where, what did you see in the Pfizer clinical trial that really concerned you? Well, you just spoke to it right there. Um, when, when you, and this ties right back into our last segment, if you have um, data manipulation going on, if you have flaws in the study design, if you have inappropriate collection of data, if you have, if you ignore certain groups of people, if you don't take into account the number of adverse reactions, or if you don't follow through with study participants that have adverse reactions, then the data in is going to be junk and the data out is going to be junk. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, when we were writing that particular paper, we were just prior to the release of the, the use of that product of the Pfizer vaccine widespread. It was just at the beginning of that. And so we've learned a lot since then. And I mm -hmm. think we're going to learn a lot more going forward, especially the more whistleblowers like the one that just came out with the BMJ. Um, but it's clear to me that if you have safe and effective treatments for anything, mm -hmm. um, and withholding those safe and effective treatments from patients in need or limiting or restricting their access to safe and effective medications, um, to me, that's a big, that's a big deal. That's criminal stuff. And mm -hmm. it really calls to attention the fact that well, the reason why they were given emergency use authorization mm -hmm. was because they denied access to the existing safe and effective treatments. Mm -hmm. 
And when you deny access to patients, you grant more power to the corporation who's creating their new products. And you basically put patients at a great disadvantage in a, in a, in a position of harm. You, definitely. It, it's not an accident to me. Michael Yeadon just published something on this a couple of days ago, showing that the countries that are the highest vaccination by population percentage are also the ones with the highest COVID counts, that the COVID counts in 21 actually have exceeded the COVID counts in 2020. How does that happen if the vaccine is the solution, right? How does that happen if this experimental product is the solution? It, 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 does, it defies logical interpretation to, to suggest that the experimental biologics are the solution, even though the situation is technically statistically worse than it was the previous year before their existence. It just defies it, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm going, you know, this, we, again, what is willful misconduct? It's the, it's the easiest, I think, legal concept to understand. You knew that you, what you were, you knew that what you were doing was wrong, but you did it anyway. That's e essentially what it is. It explains why hydroxychloroquine got politicized. It wasn't because a person in the White House that half of the country didn't like said something about it. It was because that was always going to happen. It didn't matter who touted it. It was going to be attacked. The FDA was very clear in writing doctors and has been very clear in writing doctors that you could lose your license if you are promoting ivermectin or um, or hydroxychloroquine. How preposterous when you look at the incredible clinical studies. You can go to c19early.com and see all of the published and collected research showing the efficacy and safety of these products. How many billions of doses of ivermectin has been, you know, administered globally uh, and and without causing a death? Right? <laughs> I mean, look you know, at Uttar Pradesh in India. Exactly, exactly. They, they, this elusive COVID zero goal, they hit it. How did they hit it? It wasn't through inoc experimental inoculation. It was through ivermectin, right? It, it's, it's, it's just, it's right there. So I think, you know, closing down right here, uh, because, you know, we could talk forever, uh, is that we want to make sure we let people know what you can do about it. You know, it's one thing to be informed. It's another thing to take action. Well, we've been really honored to work with Stanford Health Freedom, uh, Leah Wilson, Sayer G, um, co-founders of it. They've put together and been hugely supportive of our team's work uh, from the very beginning. They have a whole campaign, two actually two campaigns for us, one uh, calling for a congressional investigation and one calling for a grand jury investigation. We would encourage you to go to covidcon21.com where you can, uh, we have a whole page on there, covidcon21.com, and you can click in, on the grand jury um, petition and the grand jury petition will take you to stand for health freedom where it'll take you less than 15 seconds to join the over 100,000 Americans who have signed on this petition calling for a grand jury investigation into all of this fiasco this manufactured fiasco that we have to solve and get fixed so future generations aren't redoing this, reliving this same nightmare again and again. This has to be a one and done thing. And the only way we're going to get there is when with brave people like Brooke Jackson, way to go, Brooke, uh, coming forward who have information saying, no, this isn't right. And there is no amount of money that you can offer me. There's no threat of my job that you can place upon me that's going to prevent me from forgetting that I have integrity. 
and that my integrity is going to be what saves lives. It's not an experimental inoculation that's going to do be the lifesaver. It's going to be brave people of integrity coming forward and saying, nope, this is wrong. We're going to do what's right. Uh, my brother, Michael, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today on Energetic Health Radio. Um, I can't wait to have you back and talking more about this, but thank you for everything you share, and we appreciate you. Thank you, Dr. Ely, and thank you for everything you're doing. Amen. Amen. Well, fantastic stuff from Michael McAvoy. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I hope you feel empowered to tap into that power you already possess and take action. Join us in the call for a grand jury investigation into all of this. Um, Let's make sure that the truth comes to light. Make sure that if there has been any criminal acts done, that people who perform them are held accountable. Uh, Next week, we're going to hopefully, I think, uh, have on um, uh, Dr. Paul Alexander, if not, who's just done phenomenal work with collecting all the research that proves natural immunity is uh, stronger than the inoculation-induced immunity. Uh, If we can't get him next week, we'll get him on the week after that, no problem. Uh, But uh, very soon, he's going to be coming on. We have some other great guests uh, coming on uh, this month as well. So I hope you'll continue to listen in. And uh, as always, may God shine his divine light down upon us all, everyone we love, and surround us in the protection of his warm embrace. I'm Dr. Henry Ely for the Energetic Health Institute and for Energetic Health Radio, wishing you the very best. We'll see you all again next week. Peace.